Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you. Um, I uh, grew up in the suburbs uh, of Columbus, Ohio, and uh, which meant that there wasn't a whole lot to do. And so there was this uh, rite of passage that happened around middle school where uh, our, my friends and parents would, uh, dr- would drop us all off at the mall, the, the local mall, because that's what you do in the suburbs. You know, you can't like ride your bike anywhere because you'll get killed. So we're hanging out in the mall and, uh, you know, it's, and it was a big like, you know, independence thing. And of course we didn't have any money. So we're just like sitting on the couches and trying to figure out how to get a Cinnabon or something. And uh, but I don't know if it's just because I'm wired in a weird way or something, but I, I really quickly became sick of the mall. I get, I, or like by the time high school came around, I wanted kind of nothing to do uh, with the mall uh, because I would always leave feeling just not so great about myself. Uh, it was like all these little stores within the mall, they would hold out this ideal, you know, this, pi- this, this picture of a, of a good life. And it's like, hey, if you want this, then come make a purchase. But because I was a broke middle schooler, I was like, well, I, I will never live up to that idea. I'll never be able to experience that good life. And so I would always leave just feeling bad about myself and have visions of, you know, future Josh that made a ton of money and could spend 80 bucks on a polo or, you know, new which Yankee candle to buy. Like, how do you pick out a candle in that store? Like, it's just a wave of smells. And um, if you like malls, cheers. I'm not trying to, you know, make anybody mad if you, if you love malls. But as I've learned more about what the Bible teaches about being human, um, I think, uh, it's no accident that malls are the way that they are, that malls are actually kind of brilliant inventions that I think have kind of tap into some, uh, the foundation of what it means to be human. And what I'm talking about is that humans are, uh, by nature, we're, we're like arrows. Like we're always pointing towards a vision of the good life. We're always pointing towards an ideal, like at this kind of life with this kind of friends or clothes or, you know, whatever. Like this is, this is where we're headed. Like we're we're uh, journeying creatures, moving towards a vision of, of the good life. And uh, the reason I, I go into this mall thing is because in our sermon text that uh, Natalie just read, uh, if you look at verse 7, uh, which is the verse we're kind of focusing on, Jesus tells his disciples, as you go preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. And Today we're going to dive into that, that phrase and what the kingdom of heaven means, like what that actually looks like and how we experience that. And I, I would uh, submit to you for your consideration is that when you think of kingdom, think of the good life with God under his rule. And so you can kind of, using our mall analogy, you can kind of think of like each store, like a little mini kingdom. Like the, there's, you know, the kingdom of Sun, where we're all like surfer skater boys that you know don't have anything to do but chill by the beach and then you got the kingdom of brooks brothers you know where we're well dressed and we have a tailor and we're you know we're efficient and wealthy or or whatever these little visions of the kingdom that we that we pursue uh and and we see jesus distinctly calling us into his kingdom into the kingdom of heaven and then as his disciples he calls us to tell others to, to invite others into the good life with god and the reason why the kingdom is good news that we're going to dive into, I think is best captured uh, by this quote from Augustine, who was a, a fourth century um, church father, did a great, great work for just kind of uh, um, understanding what a human is. And he has this quote uh, that's written in his, uh, his confessions where he says, it's a prayer. He says, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts 
are restless until they find their rest in the God who made them and the, and the only one who can satisfy them. And malls are a great example of people capitalizing on our restless hearts and offering other kinds of rest or other kinds of, of ideals to us for a price. But in uh, a more broad sense of human life, our, our hearts are restless and we, we, chase, we chase after things like money or like security or accomplishment or people's opinions of us or trying to do a lot of things to feel validated uh, by, by them. And the good news of the kingdom shows us that the problem is not the desires. The problem is not that our hearts are restless. The problem is not that we desire security and love and validation. The problem is where we get those desires met because those desires are given to us by God. And so it's just a question of where, where are we going get to them, get them met. Uh, before we uh, move on in our sermon text, flip over a couple pages. If you're in the Pew Bible, flip over to page 1505, 1504. This uh, sermon, typically when we get to a sermon text, we just kind of go verse by verse through it. But I wanted to kind of stop on that verse 7 and kind of unpack this idea of the kingdom, unpack kind of some of this idea of like, what does the Bible show us about what it means to be a human in terms of our desires? Because uh, if you're like me, uh, the idea of the kingdom of heaven just doesn't like register much. Like it doesn't, at least how I grew up in the church, it doesn't, it doesn't mean a lot. It doesn't seem to make, uh, make a big difference on my daily life. So I want us to see maybe a little bit of anthropology, like, like what it means to be a human according to Jesus. In uh, Matthew 6, verse 19 through 24, uh, let's, uh, let's read through it. Matthew 6, this is page 1504 in the Pew Bible. These are the words of Jesus. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. We'll stop there. So what, what we see here is, again, there's probably two sermons in this, these two verses, is that Jesus is he's not mad that we're trying to get treasure. Do you see that? Like, It's not a question of like, you know, transcend the desire for treasure. Like, that's Buddhism, you know, where we, like, downplay our desires. We try to, like, detach from our desires. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's like, get your treasure. Get your treasure. Just be smart about it. Like, get treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where, where thieves don't break in and steal. Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you see Jesus kind of describing that, that, that idea that our hearts are moving towards wherever our treasure is? Like if our treasure is people's opinions of us, then all, all, everything in our life will be like, well, how do I look? How did I come across? What, what do I say? What do I don't say? What, you know, what job do, do I get? He's connecting the thing that we treasure, our desires, with, with our heart. And he's saying our heart will like be in a place wherever our treasures are. Is it... Is it money? Then that's where our treasure will be. Is it, is it our kids? Then, then that's, that's where our heart will be. He goes on, look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What Jesus is getting at here is kind of that idea of the vision. Like we have a vision of the good life. We have a vision of the kingdom that based on what we're looking at, it's going to define kind of the whole rest of our life. Like, he uses it like the lamp. 
Like if your eyes uh, see light, then your whole body is in the light. Like you can walk around chairs and not run into them. But if your eyes are dark, like if you're not looking at the lamp, if, you, if what your eyes look at, what you're, you're longing for is going to affect all of your life. So, you know, real practically, if your eye is looking at career success, like that is your kingdom, that's the good life. When I reach this point in my career, then I will have arrived, then your whole life will be shaped by that. You will walk like with that being your lamp. So you'll probably walk over your kids and your wife. You'll probably walk over other relationships. You might, you, you, you'll have problems because what is filling your eyes is this vision of career success. And then look how he wraps up verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either, either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, there's a money sermon in there, but that's not what we're going for here. We're, this is a desire sermon. <clears throat> and what we see Jesus doing is like what, what we serve comes from a place of love, comes from a place of desire. It says you either hate one master and love the other, or you'd be devoted to one and despise the other. So this brings it all the way down into our life. Like if, again, with our career success example, like if that's your if that's your functional master, like that defines your life and how you make decisions, then you will love that one and you will hate other ones. You will you will hate other other ones. And Jesus is saying that the the way to the good life with me is to make me your master, is, is to serve. God, but he shows us that that's not like a, a cold-hearted duty kind of service. It's coming from a place of love. This teaching from Jesus is, is meant to show, I, I hope to show us uh, that this isn't like my opinion. Like this isn't just like pop psychology or something like that. This idea of like our hearts wanting treasure and being with our treasure, that, the idea that what we set our eyes on, what we hope in, it defines our life. And then what we serve, like with our days, with our actions, with our little habits and stuff, is, is coming from a place of, of desire of, of what we love. And so it's a question of, what do we love? What is, our, what is our ideal? What is our good life? And so, again, when we're talking about the kingdom today, we're talking about the good life with God under his rule. If you're still in ver uh, chapter 6, skip down to verse 33. Again, the words of Jesus. This is on page 1505. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is saying uh, to seek first God's kingdom. My main point for us today is that we are kingdom seekers. It's just a matter of which kingdom. And Jesus comes on the scene and very clearly in scripture says, seek first the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And one of the questions I want us to ask today is what, what is the kingdom and why is it good news? Why is life with God under the rule of God good news to us? We see throughout all, the, all of scripture this idea of the kingdom is developed and we see especially in the gospels. Uh, we looked at John the Baptist last week saying, hey, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus starts doing ministry. He says, hey, the kingdom of God is here. He goes to his disciples and said, go out and tell people the kingdom of God is here. Like, why is that good news? What is that showing us? Well, 
to dive into this good news, um, I want us to do a little work on understanding the whole gospel. Because uh, we, we say the word gospel a lot. You know, we're in the gospel of Matthew. Uh, it's an expression. It's the gospel truth or whatever. But what is the gospel? And the gospel comes from the Greek word for glad tidings or good news. And so I want us to see what is the fullness of the gospel uh, according to scripture and then dive into why the kingdom within that understanding of the whole gospel is good news. And also to kind of consider why it's so rare that, that churches talk about it when it was the main thrust of what Jesus's message was. So we're going to look at the the whole gospel today, uh, I spent a lot of time doing design work and made a, a, a map, a chart in your bulletin uh, to map out the whole gospel um, on Microsoft Word. <laughs> I'm not a design guy. But hopefully the kind of spatial layout uh, and summary can be helpful as we're kind of picturing how these different parts of the gospel interact. Because uh, there is one gospel, and, and it, the gospel has three parts. When we, when we think of gospel as good news, um, which we say a lot here, we, we don't mean it's like Christianity 101. Or one pastor says, the gospel isn't the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. Like the gospel is it. You know, it's not like we get it, you know, when we're nine at youth camp or something, and then we move on to more advanced topics in our walk with Jesus. It's everything. And the three parts of the gospel are there uh, in that diagram, kingdom, cross, grace. Uh, there's one gospel with three parts, kingdom, cross, grace. And I believe you need to, you need to have all these parts in some form on the map, some, somehow, somewhere. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna get, to uh, get lost, get out of sync. The kingdom, uh, that's the box kind of in the middle to the left there. It refers to what we've said. We define that as the good life with God under his rule. When we read scripture and we see people talking about the kingdom, we can kind of think in our heads it, uh, as a helpful practice, think good life with God. When Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, we can say, seek first the good life with God under his rule, and all this will be added to you. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is that we get to be with God, that we can joyfully live with God under his rule. <clears throat> we can joyfully live under his rule because we can take the load off, that we're not God. We don't have to know everything or control everything or be everything. And as we're looking at the map of the gospel, what I submit to you this morning is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is the point of the gospel. It's, the, it's, it's what the gospel uh, is, is trying to accomplish. It's, it's where the gospel ends up. And again, I want you to see this from scripture, so we'll be flipping around a little bit today. Uh, flip over to Revelation 21. It's page 1937 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. Uh, it's very important to me. You see, this isn't just like Josh's opinions or some seminary professor had get me all jacked up. Like, I believe this is what the teaching of scripture shows us. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This is the end of the Bible. You'll notice that there's a lot of pages on the left, not that many on the right. This is giving a picture of what's to come. 
Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is what the the whole story of the Bible points to, is that God and man will dwell as one for all eternity, and he will wipe away all the tears, even the reason for the tears he will redeem. This is the Bible's picture of the good life with God. This is where those of us who, who are following Jesus and trusting in him will end up. But the question is, how do we get this? I hope this sounds good to you. How do we get this good life with God? It's through the cross by grace. If you're looking at your map, you see on the, on the right side of the box of the kingdom, uh, there's the door, there's the, the gateway, the entrance into the kingdom of God, and it's the cross. The cross represents the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How can God and man dwell as one? How can a perfectly holy God, magnificent in his perfection, uh, dwell with sinful, broken men who have rebelled against him and his perfect rule? It's through Jesus. Flip a few pages to the left, uh, 1 Peter 3, page uh, 1890 in the Pew Bible. First Peter 3, verse 18. Just one verse here that tells it, tells it real punchy. It tells it like it is. It says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Do you see it there? The connection between the cross, that Christ died for sins, that we are sinful, we're unrighteous, we're in rebellion, we're separated from the righteous perfection of God, the God of the universe. But Jesus died for those sins, and he was righteous, so he could pay the penalty for those sins. Jesus suffered, he was put to death in the flesh that he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus die? To bring us to God. Yes, to forgive our sins. Yes, to wash us clean. But we aren't just forgiven and left alone. Our church is right across from the the county jail across the street there, and uh, semi-frequently people will get released from jail and then come over into the office to to ask for help because they've got out of jail, they've paid their their penalty for their crimes, uh, and you know they've been released, they're free, Uh, but they have nothing because their phone is dead and they didn't have their charger and they don't have any money, they can't reach anybody, their friends live in Manistee or whatever, and. And so they're, they're just there, like they're free, they're no longer, you know, guilty, like they've paid their, they're paid their price, but they're just like on the sidewalk asking to, you know, borrow my phone charger or something, which, you know, of course I'm happy to help them with. But my point is that the cross, sometimes we treat the cross like that, like the cross pays our penalty and now we're just like on the sidewalk trying to like hustle and figure out what, you know, what to do with their lives. Because the cross isn't just a get out of hell free card, it's a get life with God free card. The cross points us to the truth that by ourselves we are sinners, which means we've rejected the kingdom. We've rejected the good life 
with God. You see this clearly in the, in the beginning of the story in Genesis where they, everything was perfect in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day and then they rejected God. They picked the fruit. They, they believed lies. And all of us have done that, rejected life with God, rebelled against his rule, tried to be God ourselves, tried to be like him. You know, we chase money, we chase stuff, we chase people, people's opinions of us. We use people to get things that we want. We manipulate and pander to get people to like us. But the good news of the cross is that Jesus' perfect life is now on us. When God looks at us, when we confess our sins and believe in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ becomes ours. His death pays the penalty for our rebellion, and his resurrection seals us to life with God. I love the, the language that we read in Revelation because he says, I will be their God, and they will be my dismal subjects. No, he says, I will be their God, and they will be my sons. They will be my children. There's no other name by which we must be saved. No way to God except through Jesus. And there's so much power if we can see that the goal of the Christ, the goal of the cross is the good life with God under his rule. We can live into the reality that is available to us, that, that, the, that the cross purchases. Because listen, if, you know, if the gospel is just that you've been forgiven, now you've got to get it together, like, that, can be, that can be a lot of shame. If the gospel is just Jesus died for you, then we'll, we'll, we could live with a lot of guilt. Like, Jesus died for me, and this, is, this was like the culture I grew up in. Like, Jesus died for you, and you can't spend 20 minutes a day reading the Bible? Like, come on. You know, like, like that's, that, that's, that's not exactly good news. That's, that sounds a lot more like guilt-mongering. Like guilt -mongering. But if Jesus died for you, so now, now that you're God's beloved child, that you can be with him, then there's hope that he's with you immovably, whether you read the Bible or not. Like, he loves you in Christ. You are now a kingdom citizen. Your basis for being in the box, in the kingdom, on our map is not anything that we have done. Guilt and shame don't change people, at least not in the long run. Relationships do. Relationships with God, relationships with God's people. And maybe for many of us who have grown up in the church and we just have like an a, a understanding of the gospel that's just, you know, the cross, just, just that part, then we, we can get stuck in cycles of shoulds and oughts. Trying to, trying to muster up some emotion because of forgiveness instead of the love that we have in God. This brings us to the third part of the gospel, grace. To define grace is a little bit tricky. Uh, the essence is that grace is the, the unconditional love of the Father. It's the undeserved good stuff that we get in Christ. The free gift. And it's it's on the map of the gospel uh, as a big circle around everything because it is like, it's like the atmosphere that holds everything together in the gospel. It's the reason why Jesus would come as a man, live and die and rise again. It's, and once we're in, it's not like we get past grace and don't need it anymore. Once we're in the kingdom of God, it's just the air we breathe. Like every breath and life with God under the rule of God is, is a gift, is, is grace. Our status as God's children, adopted into his family, as kingdom citizens, <clears throat> is free, undeserved, unconditional love. No one can swagger into life with God under his rule. No one struts into the kingdom uh, because it's by grace that any of us get there at all. 
remember, just because we, we don't swagger or strut in the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean we, like, shuffle along all, you know, down on ourselves. Because we're children of God. We belong because of what Christ has done. And just think about how do children receive gifts? Like, they open up a gift. Your six-year-old opens up a gift on Christmas morning. Uh, they're like, oh, man, I can't believe they got this for me. I didn't even make my bed today. Like, wow, mom and dad, like, I just, I don't deserve this at all. Like, no, they're kids. Like, it, no thought about any of that. They're just bouncing off the wall, delighting in the gift. Grace holds the gospel together, and it just douses our life with this childlike joy and deep gratitude for all the things we, we have in life, because we see that all the things we have in life are God's grace to us. As we experience life with God, that it's a gift. We see this uh, super clearly in Ephesians 2. Flip there to Ephesians 2. This passage shows us grace, and then it sends us right back into the kingdom. This is uh, page 1818 in the Pew Bible. Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So it's kind of a rough intro there to chapter 2. But we see that the Bible calls us dead apart from God. Apart, Apart from God... We are, we are not like zombies that have a little bit of life in us, like we're, like we're just dead. Like, how many things have you seen dead people do in your life? You know, zero. Like, de- dead people don't do anything. They, they can't do anything to get into the kingdom of God. They can't <clears throat> crawl towards the cross. Like, they're, they're, just, they're just dead. Look at verse 4. But because of the great love for us, his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We see very clearly that it's just nothing of ourselves that gets us into the kingdom, that we're, that we're dead, that we're just on the bottom of the sea with fish eating us a little bit. It's God's unconditional love that has us forever. But then skip down to, to verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this sends us right back into the kingdom. And it's a beautiful picture of being dead on the bottom of the ocean, no hope of revival, and God coming and giving us new life. And then the result of that, now that of that new life, brings us to verse 10, which is that we're God's workmanship, created to do good works, which God prepared. And if you're looking at Uh, the map of the gospel in your bulletin, you'll notice there are some nuances there. First, if you look at the grace section, it says uh, it doesn't matter what you do. And and that's true. We read that. Like, you're dead. It doesn't matter what you do. There's nothing you can do. Apart from God, we're dead. And a great example is the thief on the cross who was crucified next to Jesus, whose feet never touched the ground as a Jesus follower. Like, he, he confessed Jesus as Lord and Jesus said, you're in, you're in, you'll be with me in paradise. Nothing we do has anything to do with our salvation, with getting life with God under his rule. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. And even the faith 
is not of ourselves. Like we can't go around to be like, if you were like me and had great faith, then you know, then you then you could get in. Because even our ability to believe, our faith is is a gift. It doesn't matter what we do. We can't, I can't say it enough. When it comes to our standing before God, to our uh, <clears throat> to our ability to live life with God under His rule, it doesn't matter what we do. We enter the kingdom by grace. But then if you look at the kingdom box and the description of the kingdom, what we do matters. Everything matters in the kingdom of God because we've been made new and created unto good works. That God has good stuff for us to do, good works for us to do. This is part of the good news of the kingdom is that life isn't senseless anymore. Everything about our life matters in the kingdom of God. Our actions, our habits, our relationships, our job, our money, our sexuality, all the details of life matter in the kingdom of God. Not to make God love us more, uh, but they matter in the kingdom box. Living life with God under the rule of God means that we actually live under the rule of God. Like we actually live according to God's way of life. We like let him be the king of our lives and say yes to whatever he says, however he calls his children to live. And a good life with God under his rule requires everything of us. Like Jesus makes it clear, if you don't love me more than your wife, than your kids, than your parents, than your job, then you don't deserve to be my disciple. And I think if we consider it just real practically, how we live is going to dramatically affect that relationship. Like how we live is going to dramatically affect the degree to which we, we experience the good life with God. The obvious example is marriage. Like the joy and intimacy of marriage comes not in some big, huge party at your wedding, but in the, the daily habits, the, the daily rhythms of our life together where we're building trust and we're serving each other and we're forgiving each other and we're listening to each other and we're compromising and we're doing fun things together and we're taking care of kids together. All these daily habits, that's going to create the intimacy in marriage. It's not just, uh, it's not just a one and done thing. And then simultaneously, if I like, you know, move to Nebraska and start a shuffleboard company or something and never see Camille or help with the kids or anything, like, we'll still be married, uh, but like, to what degree will we be enjoying married life? Like, none. Like, we, we don't spend time together. We don't do things together. We don't listen to each other. We don't talk to each other. <clears throat> the same is true with God. Like, it is by grace we've been saved. Like, we... Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But there's just really hopeful impl implications if God feels far away from you or cold, uh, that we can look at the things of our life and ask, like, to what degree is this me seeking life with God, uh, submitting to his rule as the one who knows how everything, everything works? And it's just really hopeful because it doesn't, it doesn't put intimacy with God in this, like, you know, distant hill somewhere in the Middle East that we need to save our money and go make a trek to. It puts it right here in our life. Jesus says the kingdom is among you. The things that we watch, the people we spend time with, the food we eat, how we spend our money, all these things become means, ways, tools to seek first the kingdom of God. We'd love to talk about that, but in our sermon text, uh, Jesus uh, is giving example or he's giving instructions to his disciples on how to go on mission, how to go do what Jesus did. And he says, preach this message. Preach that life with God under the rule of God is available. 
And I want to just kind of bring that down into like w how that works, I think, in our day and age. When we <clears throat> experience the kingdom uh, of God, life with God under his rule, it's where our souls find rest. It's where we experience uh, freedom from anxieties about money, people's opinions start to melt, melt away. The fear of being stuck or insignificant starts to fade because the God of the universe is looking on us with delight, with fatherly delight. And so when we go out on mission, when we go out to, to be the presence of Jesus to people, to do what Jesus did and proclaim the kingdom of God, we go out with this framework that everybody is an, everybody is an arrow. Everybody is looking for the good life. Everybody is like ravenously trying to find rest for their souls. That's just like secret of the universe stuff that scripture shows us. Like our souls need rest and they can only find it in God. And so when we are building relationships with people out in the world and we want to point them to Jesus, we can, we can get to know them. This is kind of like the point of relational evangelism. As we, we, can, we can get to know their story, what they're about, how they spend their money and their time, and just be a friend and get to know them and ask, like, what's their kingdom? What's their vision of the good life? What, what, what need are they trying to meet apart from God? And this is really a, a beautiful way to relate to people because you're going to them in their needs. You're going to them tenderly. And we can be patient and compassionate knowing that, but for the grace of God, we would be doing the same. We'd be seeking the same rival kingdoms. We don't need to be like angry at people who are, you know, seeking other kingdoms because like that's, that's the state of all of us. Maybe they're seeking after the kingdom of comfort just to be left alone, you know, and have no problems. Or maybe they're just chasing money and just amusing themselves with stuff. Or maybe they stay up at night rethinking every meeting because they're so anxious about what others think about them. And we can look at this, this sin. We can look at these pursuits of other kingdoms other than God, not angry or judgmentally, but just graciously and really freely and open-handedly say like, hey, there's a different way. There, there's rest for your soul, and his name is Jesus. And what I'm saying is that the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God, it opens us up to the goodness of human desire. Like, human desire is a good thing. Like, God help us if we, like, get succumbed by Buddhism and just try to, like, repress everything and, you know, just eat oatmeal for every meal or something. Humans are, by nature, kingdom seekers. And so we build friendships with people who don't know Jesus. We, we just want to listen and see, like, what, 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 are, what are the desires that I can affirm? Like, you desire to be safe. Like, you desire to belong. That is a good, God-given desire. How is, you know, your zombie compound in the woods helping you? Like, do you feel belong? Do you feel safe? You know, it's like the, the more we, we withdraw, typically, the less safe we feel. We can say, how is it working out for you? How much money will be enough to feel safe? And once we get to know people's story, we get some idea of, of what they're looking for. And then we just say, hey, God fulfills all of that. I could give you examples of this. Uh, you know, just I could make them up or stories from my life. But I thought it'd be better to see how Jesus does this. Like this is literally Jesus's plan for evangelism. Uh, so if you'll indulge me one more, uh, one more passage, flip over to John 4. Uh, this is my favorite chapter in the Bible. Uh, I named my son after it. 
and uh, I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, John 4, page 1652. Jesus is talking to uh, a woman uh, at the well in a city outside of Israel, like outside of Jesus' home nation. And look with me at verse uh, 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Let's stop there for a minute. I just want to point out that Jesus was tired, like he had been walking all morning, it's hot in the middle of the day, and you picture him sitting there by the well, thirsty, and rubbing his tired feet, and this woman comes up, and, and he engages her out of his fatigue. I don't know, I just think it's beautiful. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You see Jesus drawing her out just by, like, talking to her. He's being, like, very subversive, like very punk rock right now because, one, she was a woman, and men didn't just chat with women openly, and, two, she wasn't Jewish. She was a Samaritan, and there's a whole long history of racism between Israel and Samaria, So Jesus is kind of like doing this hook, like he's moving towards her and kind of getting, uh, getting her interested. And she starts asking him questions. Isn't that fascinating? Like, are you greater than the, God, the Jacob of the Old Testament? That's what she says next. Uh, verse 11, sir, the woman, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. So she's intrigued and she, because Jesus is kind of asserting, like, hey, there's something more than this. Like, there's something more than this water. And then she starts to talk to him about satisfaction. Look, at, look what Jesus says. Everyone who drinks this water will never be thirsty again, but whoever drinks water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to come, keep coming here to draw water. Do you see Jesus getting at her, her satisfaction? Like he's, he's saying like you're thirsty, like both physically, like it's hot and you're coming to the well. Uh, but there's, there's living water that springs up and it quenches your thirst. <clears throat> he's promising her satisfaction. And then look what he does next. He does some uh, false kingdom analysis here. Verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Do you see him going after her false kingdom? This lady, for years apparently, has been seeking the false kingdom of men, of relationships with men, romantic relationships with men. She's hopped from man to man seeking satisfaction. And the interesting thing about when we see kind of this, like, obvious behavior is that it can kind of come from a different root. Like, if there's, like, the hopping from man to man is the fruit, it can kind of come from a, from a root. Like, was it sexual fulfillment, like the pleasure? Was it, 
wanting to be attractive and like, you know, kind of the, the conquest or whatever to be able to allure men? Was it security she was looking for? Like she was hard up and needed a place to stay. So she kind of exchanged sex for rent or something. She was seeking the kingdom of romantic relationships with men and it just wasn't working out for her. She's coming to the well in shame, trying to get water in the middle of the day. Jesus, skip down to verse 25. Jesus sidesteps her attempt to change the subject. That happens sometimes when you go after somebody's false kingdom. You're like, how's that working out for you? And they're like, how's it working out for you? And you're like, okay, we'll, t- we'll talk about it later. Jesus sidesteps that. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to, to us. Then Jesus declared, to you, declared, I who speak to you am he. Jesus says, it's me. Later on in the Gospel of John, he says, I'm the living water. I, I am it. I am what satisfies you. This is a beautiful paradigm for proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We get to know people. We kind of ask questions. We get to know them a little bit. We kind of point out their false kingdoms, and then we point them to the true kingdom. We point them to Jesus, who will satisfy them. Jesus is the king. We see him enter people's stories, calling them to the true king, the true kingdom, life with God under his rule. So now we see that Jesus' instructions to call people into the kingdom to his disciples, I hope, make a lot of sense. That's very good news. It's very good news that the satisfaction that all of us are looking for is found in life with God under the rule. It's why Jesus is telling his disciples to proclaim that message, because Jesus was God. And now people can come and follow him and experience life with him under his rule. We don't condemn people for their desires, for security or significance or approval. We can just simply say, how's it working out for you? Come to the living water. Come drink the drink that will satisfy. It's free. And one of the best ways to proclaim the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, is to testify, to witness, to explain how we have experienced that satisfaction. Hey, I, you know, I was a lustful mess. I needed women to make me feel important and significant. And it never worked. It actually made me feel more worthless about myself. Now I see that the significance that I was looking for is actually in Jesus. I was so significant to Jesus that he was willing to die for me and bring me into life with him. It's, it, it bring me into his work. It's an eternal significance, work that will never fade. People are lost. People are restless. We know that. Scripture tells us like, people are restless. Like They might have some you know, level of numbness or be okay for a while. But people are trying to meet God-given needs with the worst kind of false gods and lies. and So we can just herald Jesus' kingdom. And to close, I was going to give you a, a couple questions to, to chew on this week. Because uh, I think this will help us navigate, help us navigate what, what our false kingdoms are. Which is, uh, uh, help us proclaim Jesus' kingdom by knowing what our false kingdoms are. Which, so the question is, what false kingdom are you most drawn towards? Like, what vision of the good life is most alluring to you? Is it, you know, is it the one with, like, all your millions and your, you know, Mercedes? Is it the one where everybody thinks you're cool? What, what kingdom are you most drawn towards? What, what desire are you trying to, do you feel the strongest? And how might God fulfill that desire? Because fulfilling our desires is the fuel for evangelism, the fuel that sends us out into the world to, to proclaim, testify to the satisfaction 
that can be experienced with God. Let me pray.